Good evening. Hello. Hi. How y'all doing? Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and tell them your bank account PIN number? No? <laughs> no, you don't like that one? Okay, all right. Ah. <sighs> It's August, apparently. Last I checked the calendar, it seems that we've hit the month of August. Now, if you happen to have a Bible there, why don't you start trying to find Second Chronicles chapter 20? <laughs> if, you, if you've got an electronic device, it's very easy for some of you. If you have the, uh, the old-fashioned paper version, it may take you a little while, but I'll meet you there in just a few moments. So like I said, I want to set the foundation for what we are doing in the month or so ahead. So far, probably the predominant prophetic word that we have had for 2018 that has been the overarching, there's been a number of them, um, but the one that has been overarching is this word about it's a year to take ground. That was one of the strongest, I guess, overarching words that we had was it's a year to take ground. And in particular... For the first half of the year, that ground that we have been sensing he wants to take is actually inside us. Because taking ground in us precedes taking ground through us. Has to happen in here before it happens out there, because our world out there is a manifestation of what happens in here. And one of the most important things about him taking ground in us is that we do this together as family. In other words, we do the heart journey together as family. Apostolic kingdom, family. We've been working really hard in the family part. And so pushing into uncomfortable stuff like, oh my goodness, we actually need to relate to each other. We actually need to share our hearts with one another and minister to one another. We can't just turn up to a religious event each week. So that's the family part. And the whole thing that we've talked about, the squeeze, has been this sense that God is wanting to take ground in us. And in the squeeze, he is refining us and focusing us at a deeper level. Now the sense is we need to learn how do we take ground in spirit together. So taking ground in the spiritual realm together because taking ground in us and taking ground in the spirit realm precedes taking ground in the natural realm. If it's not happening in the spirit first, it's not going to manifest in the natural. All the breakthrough that you're hoping for, all the breakthrough that you're praying for, it happens in the spirit first. Most of us would know Ephesians chapter 6. Well, good, I won't say anything about it then. So just take, no, no, the armor of God. Um, And Paul says really clearly there, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. In other words, our battle is a spiritual one. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Carnal doesn't mean sinful. Carnal means just human, fleshly just normal human. The weapons we fight with aren't carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, we need to take ground in spirit before we're actually going to see stuff manifested in the natural. And so many of us, there is stuff brewing around your destiny, around who he is created to be. And that requires breakthrough in the natural, requires breakthrough in finance. It requires breakthrough in favor, in career. Anyone up for any of those things? Yeah, yeah, me too. If any of you don't want it, I'll have yours quite happily. Um, But taking ground in spirit 
precedes taking ground in the natural. And as we learn how to take ground in spirit together, a whole lot more becomes possible for all of us, both together and individually. Corporate authority is greater than individual authority. When when two or three are gathered, there I am. If two or three ask anything in my name, it will be done. There there is an authority when we are gathered and we join our individual authority together that can shift things in the spirit that we can't shift individually. And to the extent that we exclude ourselves from the corporate, we miss out on that higher level of authority for breakthrough. To which I kind of go, duh, why would we do that? (laughs) Is that just me? Why would we do that? Because there is so much more breakthrough available. So, and then after this, we're going to look at taking ground through us. What does that look like? But for right now, over the next month or so, we want to look at how do we take ground in spirit together. And what I want to suggest, and this is where we'll jump to Second Chronicles chapter 20. One of the biggest keys to us taking ground together is this thing called worship. Let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's tempting to read the entire chapter. So let me just pick a few bits and then I'll jump and we'll, we'll, we'll find the sweet spot. So 2 Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the this is 2 Chronicles tw- chapter 19. Oh, come on, work with me. Come on, that was funny. No, it wasn't. Okay, thanks, Eliza. <laughs> it was a dad joke. All right. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the... Moonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already Hazaz on Tamar, that is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Anyone ever felt like that, where you're being bombarded on every side? Like there is this vast army out there that's bigger than your world and you feel like you're just under attack and you're under siege and surrounded. Anyone ever felt like that? Yeah. This is the situation that Jehoshaphat was in. Then Jehoshaphat stood up. Jehoshaphat was the king of Israel, by the way. In case you didn't know that part of the story. Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, and he prayed this phenomenal prayer. Can I suggest you go in and, you know, later on, go in and read through that um, entire prayer because it's really, really, really cool. Um, And then in verse 13, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of all those other dudes. That's important for Hebrew history that they know who that is. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. Crazy names. Um, And you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to stand firm. Sorry. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Anyone want that prophetic word? Well, just start meditating on it and it's all yours. It's in there. It's legal to claim it. Okay, it's in the book. You can have it. 
Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some of the Levites uh, from the Kohathites and the Korahites, I did this to myself, really, stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God. You will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Opened up a can of kick butt right there. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. In other words... Crazy military strategy. Many of us have read this scripture before. Many of us have heard stuff, possibly even from me, on this scripture before. They get a prophetic word. God's going, guys, I got this. And so Jehoshaphat uses the most ridiculous military strategy of all. Actually, there's one other in scripture that's really ridiculous. Um, but this, this is in the top two. Of sending out a bunch of singers to face an army that is vast, huge, and angry, and bloodthirsty. So let's send some people who can sing. That sounds like a good kind of um, script for a comedy show, if you can imagine. A bit of a Robin Hood Men in Tights. Isn't there a singer in Robin Hood Men in Tights that... Like we're sending out something like that first. But they weren't, it wasn't a comedy act at all. This was a very deliberate strategy. As they go out, their focus is on who God is and declaring who God is. And when they did that, God set an ambush against the army and the army ends up turning on themselves. Such is the power of worship. In other words, when you feel surrounded, there's a strategy right here for you that says, start to declare who God is rather than to look at who the enemy is and your circumstances come against you. Start to declare who he is and you'll take ground. Let's go to um, Acts chapter 17, I think it is. I very cleverly didn't write it down. I wrote down Paul and Silas. It is, uh, Acts chapter 16, sorry. Acts chapter 16. Verse 16, Acts 16, 16. Once when we were going, this is Paul talking, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Um, if you actually look at the original Greek, that is, she had a pneuma python. Pneuma means spirit. Python is the kind of spirit. So in some versions, it says it's a spirit of divination. The actual Greek says she was possessed by a python spirit. If you know anything about a python spirit, it operates like a python. It just wraps itself around and then just slowly sucks the life out of you. That, that, that's the way that that sucker operates. And, and that is what witchcraft and divination essentially does. It just bit by bit just sucks the life out of you. Um, verse 16 and following of Acts chapter 16. 
Um, so she had a spirit. She had a Python spirit. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Um, isn't that interesting that it was a demon talking, but it was telling the truth? Hmm. Interesting thought. It knew the truth. But Paul was really smart here. He understood, and there's, there's so many different things we can grab out of, and learnings we can grab out of this. Even though that demon was telling the truth and you would think, oh, cool, there's a person walking behind me just declaring the gospel for me. Isn't that awesome? But Paul was so agitated by the spirit that was driving this particular woman. Um, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. In other words, basically, the, the captivity of that city was tied up in this spirit of divination, in this, in this Python spirit. And now that Paul took authority over that thing and cast it out, there goes the, the whole economic strategy of some of these key people in the, in the city. In other words, you're not just casting a demon out of a person, you're ruining our entire economy. Um, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice, like driving out demons and things. The crowd joined in the attack and Paul, uh, against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, like, he's in prison in prison at this point in time. So, yeah, initially it looks like he kicked this python spirit's butt, but this thing still had a hold in the city, so it turned around with its tail and kind of went whack, beat the snot out of him, and put him in prison. In prison. You would think he'd be a little discouraged. A little annoyed. It's like, God, I'm just doing what you said, and here I am. But no, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Not a bad strategy. Once again, you feel like you're surrounded, chained, boxed in, locked in. What do you do? Start to worship. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Basically, if you're a jailer and you let prisoners escape, they'd kill you. So he thought, well, better than them doing it, I'll do it. Um, and then Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer, <laughs> the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not a bad turnaround, right? Kind of started here, went to hell in a handbasket. They worshipped, it turns around again. And so on it goes. Here's the point. Worship shifted something in the heavenlies in that place. And you know, they didn't have a band. You know, they didn't have the lovely, you know, ambient kind of strings to make the, the atmosphere in there. They were in prison, in prison. But worship just flowed out of their hearts to the point where I want to suggest it shifted the atmosphere in spirit, which caused an earthquake in the natural, which opened everything up. 
In other words, they took ground in the spirit through their worship, which caused a manifestation of that breakthrough on the earth, which looked like an earthquake and prison doors opening, chains falling off. That's all right. That's, that's, that's not bad, right? So when we come together and we do what we've just done for the last nearly hour or so, this, this is not just karaoke. This is not just filling up a slot in a religious program. We're going after something together. We're actually wanting to take ground in the spirit realm together. We're taking people's Jerichos that feel like they're tightly shut up and there is no way in. But as we worship, walls come down. As we worship, the enemy gets ambushed. As we worship, people get breakthrough. They get healing. They get deliverance. And our engagement, my engagement, forget that I'm kind of, I have some kind of role in the place at the moment as the pastor, but if I'm just someone as part of you, my engagement contributes to the level of breakthrough that we all experience. This is so critical in terms of if we're going to take ground in spirit together, we have to understand that every single one of us plays a role in corporate breakthrough. So imagine a day where you're turning up and you're coming and you're going, I just need breakthrough today, God. I just need breakthrough Knowing that corporate authority is bigger than individual authority, I'm wanting to draw on the corporate authority, the corporate anointing, because I need breakthrough. This is a reasonable thing, right? You know, we all come some days and we are hungry, we are discouraged, we are disheartened. We go, God, I need you to touch me. I need you to meet me when we gather. Am I the only one? This happens to me even as the pastor, right? So this is, this, this, this is all of us. What I need in that moment is the people around me to rise up and to engage because their rising up and engaging actually impacts my breakthrough. Now, there's other weeks where I, I, I'm feeling good. I'm like I'm living in, but I'm feeling really good. And I could just come in and kind of sit down and go, hey, everything's just really cool for me. <sighs> but when we get together, it's not about me. Because if I'm living in breakthrough, it's my responsibility to share it. It's my responsibility to engage in praise and in worship in such a way that lifts the water level for everybody else and starts to open up the heavens above us so that breakthrough is possible. Every single one of us carries a responsibility for the breakthrough of everyone around you. That's family. We're getting the idea? That, that's family. That's what we do. I don't just show up for me. I don't show up to the family meal just for me. I show up for us because we're a family. We're actually a part of each other. We belong to each other. And when one part suffers, we all part suffers. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. In other words, we all flow together. Our hearts are connected and your breakthrough matters to me. So I position myself in worship in such a way that... I'm going to contribute to corporate breakthrough. Now, I don't know if any of you, um, some of you who've studied physics would understand the concept of critical mass. A anyone? You, you understand that? You're a nerd. Yeah, one of my favorite nerds on the planet, Grant. Can, can you easily explain critical mass to us? No. Okay, good. <laughs> 
So critical mass is something that happens in the process of um, nuclear fission, really. <laughs> yeah, so there's a point where, like, I'm not going to get this exactly right, and I'll be branded as a scientific heretic at some point, but I'm willing to take that risk, where, where the, there's enough kind of molecules flowing together to create a reaction that actually sets off an atomic explosion doesn't have to be every single thing, but there's a certain level of mass that is required to tip that thing over. For me, when corporate worship is a little bit like we're going after that critical mass. We're going after that point where there is enough of us in spirit actually engaged and operating in our anointing, our priestly anointing as the children of God, that there is enough of it that tips us over into a realm that is not of this earth and is of heaven. But the thing is, if there isn't a critical mass, nothing happens. <laughs> nothing explodes if there's not a critical mass. We're getting the idea here? So what I, want, what I want us to explore in the weeks ahead is how do we go about that in a really pragmatic way? How do we go about that? What is my responsibility? What does that look like? How do we interact with each other? How do we interact with those who are leading in such a way that contributes to that critical mass that when that happens, something happens in the corporate that flows over and everyone starts to get touched in a way that they couldn't if they were just there on their own? Now, when we are worshipping together, we're not just doing a service to fulfil our religious desires. And I'm, I'm feeling like, I'm like cheapening that and I'm not trying to be like that Um, because I don't think many of us approach worship like that is what I'm trying to say. I don't don't think that's the way that we come together. Um, But sometimes I think we forget what we're really doing when we're together and that is we are going after a breakthrough in the spirit realm together. What we're we're going after is what the Celts in, in the Celtic revival started to call a thin place where the veil between heaven and earth seems very, very thin and it's so easy to, um, to engage with the heavenly realm in that geographical location. If you look at our core purpose as a church, um, you know, of the four things we do, number one is we, we establish zones of presence that facilitate encounter. In other words, we, it doesn't say we hold church services. <laughs> Okay, we establish zones of presence that facilitate encounter. In other words, the blueprint that is on us as a community is to establish places where the veil between heaven and earth is ridiculously thin and people just walk in and go, oh my gosh, God is here. Or they may go, something is here. I don't know what that is, but I need more. I experience that sometimes out in the corporate world when people don't really know the right thing to say or what that is. Like, whatever this is, I want more of it. Actually, um, my friend that many of you prophesied over about this time last year when I was in hospital, um, who hadn't experienced a whole lot of church, but as I released all the prophetic words that you sent to me over him in hospital, um, he just goes, oh my goodness, I can, I can feel something. Do, do you people call that the anointing? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty right. That, that, that's what you're experiencing. That, that's what happens in a thin place is people start to come into a realm of encounter that goes beyond what is in their head and it becomes this heart thing that just goes, I want more of this. That's what we're after. Am I making sense here? Okay. So we're not just doing a program. We're not just doing music because we like it, even though we really do like it. 
we're actually going after breakthrough together. And we can actually see precedent. It's all through the Psalms about, you know, clashing symbols. Psalm 150 is probably one of the loudest Psalms of all. I love it. It's just got smashing things and harps and lyres. And that's L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R. Lyres, which in my... In my um, Modern interpretation is like Pete on the electric guitar, just cranking it and going for it. Um, so there is precedent that music actually releases an anointing. Yet King da- David, before he was king, when Saul was king and Saul was deeply demon-possessed, got out his harp and started playing. And as he started playing, an anointing was released over King Saul that tamed the demon that was tormenting him. So that we use music for a number of reasons. One of, one of them is that there is an anointing that's released, but also music is a language of the heart. A whole lot more on that as we go. So, we worship because God deserves it, but as we do, we want to take ground in spirit together. Now, what wars against that? Jump back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Very familiar story. Genesis chapter 3, this is the story of the fall of man. Now, just before Genesis 3, obviously it's Genesis 2. And at the end of Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, apologies for the visual people. Just get over that for a moment. What I want to say there is understanding they didn't have... A self-awareness that led to self-consciousness. In other words, they were completely exposed, but they really didn't know and they really didn't care because there was no shame attached to it. The moment the fall happened, they start going for fig leaves and like trying to cover up because all of a sudden they had developed a level of self-awareness that God never intended. And that is they were aware of themselves apart from the presence and the voice of God and they chose to hide. See, shame really is the, um, the demon-inspired version of self-awareness. In other words, one of the things that happened at the fall is that Adam and Eve became more aware of themselves than they became aware of Him. This is one of the things that we battle in worship. And it doesn't look like hiding for fig leaves and, you know, unless you have those dreams where you turn up somewhere and it's like, oh my God, I'm completely naked. Does anyone else have those dreams? (laughs) Okay, too much sharing. Okay, moving right along. The sort of thing that happens for us when we get self-conscious is the, oh, I think my voice sounds really bad. Um, If I do that and no one else is doing that, well, I look stupid. Are they going to be thinking about me? What are they going to think if I do that? What if I step out with that thing that I really want to do and no one comes with me? I'm going to look so, so stupid again. Um, Again, is this just me or has anyone else ever had this kind of dialogue going in in my head? This is a result of the fall where we become more aware of ourselves than we do of him. And then we bring that in here and it causes us to hide and it causes us to shut down. So one of the things that we need to start to learn to do a whole lot more as a community is to cultivate our God awareness to the point where that bad kind of self-awareness just doesn't play a part anymore. Where I'm more aware of Him and what He is doing than how I look 
how I feel, how I sound, all of that stuff starts to become irrelevant when I cultivate my awareness of Him. Shame is false self-awareness. And it is the enemy of everything that is good in your life. And it is the enemy of everything good in corporate life together. Because it will shut us down and cause us to overly self-evaluate apart from the voice of God. See, in the fall, it wasn't just that... I mean, yes, we became sinful at that point in time. Jesus fixed that. But at that point, they became sinful. And they developed an ability to evaluate themselves apart from the voice of God. Who told you that you were naked? In other words, they had evaluated themselves apart from the voice of God. We do it all the time when we gather. I evaluate myself. Oh, am I really worthy? Am I this? Am I, do I sound better? Yeah, all of those things. We self-evaluate apart from his voice. So as we come... Let's cultivate our awareness of him. Let's stir up our spirits before we even get here. More on that in the weeks to come. See, it's not just about taking ground though. See, our first ministry of the people of God is actually to him. So 1 Peter 2.9, many of you know the scripture. You're a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God, so that... You may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That first ministry of our priestly office is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, we are responsible to minister to him before we're responsible to minister to each other. And actually, when we minister to him, he starts to minister to the each other in a way that we never can. One of the things that was said about the early church was they were together in one accord. Now, that's not a car, a small one, because <laughs> trying to fit 120 plus people in a small car would be very, very difficult. Um, sorry, another dad joke. They were together in one accord. Many of you have heard this before. That word one accord is the Greek word homothumidon. What it means, in long form, it means one in heart and mind with a fiery passion. If you break it down, homo means same, thumidon means fire. In other words, one accord means they were of the same fire. You, you, you hearing me? <laughs> same fire. Many of you have heard this story before, and I'm about to come into land. Um, when Deb and I were over in Bethel, um, we were walking out of a shop called Trader Joe's in Reading, um, and I was—I just got off the phone, and a guy comes up behind me and says, "Is your name Tim?" And I'm in Reading, right? And for those of you who don't know Reading, it's full of school of supernatural students who are practicing their words of knowledge and um, who are very, very prophetic. And so I'm thinking, "Okay, I'm in Reading. It was bound to happen at some point if I'm in a public place." So the guy goes, "Is your name Tim?" To which I say, "Yes." obviously because it is. Um, and he goes, oh, I've got, this, I've got a word of knowledge for you. And then he just goes to walk off. Uh, and so I felt naturally I'd follow and go, yeah, yep, yeah, come on, bring it. He goes to get into his car. And I'm like, huh? 
And he just goes, you're called to bring the fire to the south. And then he gets in his car and sods off. To which I go, I've just had the quintessential Reading Bethel experience of being prophesied over in the street. But then he nicked off. This guy did not know me for a bar of soap, got my name right, prophesied over me. He had no idea who I was, what I was called to, and, and or where I was from. Because he wouldn't have heard me long enough to actually hear my accent. And I don't know if you're aware, but Australia is kind of south. It is the great south land of the Holy Spirit. So I said, you're called to bring the fire to the south. And one of the things I've said since our foundation is we're not called to bring the church to the south as such. We're called to bring the fire and then see what church looks like as a result of that. As we worship together, we are cultivating the same fire. We are cultivating homothumidon. Now that requires family. That requires our hearts to be connected together, but it requires us paying attention to the fire. So two Sundays ago, I think when we went out to Rod and Sharon's place, went, went out to Sam's place, we hung around a fire. Now when there's a fire in our midst, what do people do? They interact with the fire. They stand around the fire. They play with the fire. They poke at the fire. They, the, the fire is the thing because it's so cool. <laughs> it's really hot too, but... Um, <laughs> To me, that is such a picture of apostolic kingdom family. We're gathered around the fire. And we're more aware of the fire than we are of ourselves. Yes, we're aware of the fire's impact upon us. Like you get too close, it's really, really hot. Yes, we're aware of the impact, but we do stuff in the presence of a fire that we wouldn't normally do. Because we're more aware of the fire than we are of ourselves. You're getting my drift here. Every one of us has a responsibility to pay attention to the fire. Because eventually when people started to leave, the fire just goes out. Like unless you actually stoke and cultivate a fire, it's going to go out. Every one of us is responsible for the condition of the fire. Um, I got a message during the week from a a guy that had been on one of my corporate programs years and years ago, um, and I talked about a book that I was you know, brewing around, um, which is now in, in progress, and different to the one I put on Facebook this week. And um, one of the things he said, you know, how's the book going? I really want a copy when it's done. You know, keep in touch. And so I just wrote back and said, hey, how you doing? What's happening? Here's where it's up to. Um, and, you know, what are you up to now? Because I knew he wasn't working with the organisation that I did that program with. And... He talked about the program that he had been on where it was out in the Hunter Valley, which is a horrible place to have to go to do, you know, business stuff. But, you know, someone has to take one for the team. Um, and um, so we're out in the Hunter Valley, and this is the program where so many of my breakthrough stories come from. It's just a really fun program where people just feel really safe to break open their world and, and get really honest and authentic. And what he said in his message to me was attending PEP, PEP stands for Personal Effectiveness Program, he said, attending PEP sparked something hungry and vicious inside of me. Like, oh, I love that language. It just, it just struck me. Like, this guy's not a Christian, right? He experienced something of God on that because that's basically what we do. They don't know that, but that's what we do. And he said, it sparks something hungry and vicious inside of me. See, most of us at some point in our life have had something hungry and vicious sparked inside of us, but we let it ember out. And it's time for that hungry, vicious fire to be cultivated in every single one of us afresh. See, Jesus takes this seriously. Revelation chapter 2, and I promise you this is the last thing I'm going to say. 
And if you believe that, <laughs> this is it. Right? Revelation chapter 2. Again, a story many of us, are, or a passage of scripture that many of us are familiar with. It's, it's when Jesus speaks a word to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus, obviously. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Now that is a pretty amazing compliment right there. Like if someone came and said that to you, like you have suffered hardship, but yet you have stuck at it. You have not grown weary. You've set your face like flint on the goal and you have not wavered from that. Like that is, that is pretty darn high praise given what, they, what Christians went through in those days. You know, they didn't just turn up to church with their iPhones and, you know, and if they weren't there, they could stream it live or get the podcast. It wasn't like that. They, they risked death. Um, Ephesus in particular was a church that had taken a whole city. So this was, this was the city where the temple of the goddess Diana was, was there and was worshipped. And basically, Paul kicked that principality out of town as well um, and set off probably what was one of the biggest breakthroughs citywide in the book of Acts. That, that's the church of Ephesus. These guys, these guys took some serious ground. They knew what that was about. Verse 4, and this is Jesus talking to them. Because you would think, yeah, we took a whole city for you, Jesus. You, you would kind of think that would build up a currency that just says, you know, it's all good from here on, right? <laughs> Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. <laughs> no, you have done amazing. You have taken a whole city. Yet you've forgotten who you did it for. You've let your fire go out. It says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. And that is um, a symbol of essentially your anointing. Your anointing will be removed from among you if you don't get back to the thing you did at first. In other words, you cast out demons in my name, but I feel like I don't know you anymore. This is the challenge for us. Coming back to our first love. Coming back as a family to same fire. One in heart and mind, that's the family, with a fiery passion. That's the apostolic kingdom part. And as we come together, we take ground. And it might not be me that gets it this week, but my worship unlocks something for you. But next week, you might not get it, but your worship unlocks something for me. That's family. That's body life. That's what we're about. So what am I asking? I'm really asking, don't ever come to church the same again. <laughs> it's upgrade time. He's wanting to upgrade our fire. What I want you to do right now is just take a moment. I want you to assess your hunger level. Just for a moment. And just as a clue, don't do this without the voice of God because self-evaluating apart from the voice of God led to a really bad place. But just take a moment and just get really honest with you and Jesus in your own heart. Where is my hunger level at right now?
for many of us, I'd be willing to make a little wager, even though I'm not really a betting man, but I'd be willing to make a little wager that if we got really honest with ourselves, we'd say, you know what, my hunger level's been higher. And the words of Jesus to the church at Ephesus were, repent. Now, what does repent mean? We think of get on the floor and suck carpet and tell God what a scumbag you are. I want to suggest that's not repentance. Repentance literally means to come to a higher perspective. Re means to go back to pent is like penthouse, the top floor of a building. The Greek word metanoia means basically to go back to a higher way of thinking. In other words, you have let stuff creep into your life, into your mind and heart set that has put some water on your fire. And it's time to go back to the higher way of thinking and say, God, I acknowledge I've let stuff creep into my world that has dampened my fire. And I want to put that thinking away. I want to put that thinking aside. I've let myself become more aware of me than I am of him. I've forgotten that I need to be tending the fire and I'm just going through the motions. Jesus was really serious about this to the point where he said, if we don't nail this, your lampstand, your anointing is at risk. In other words, it's not enough to just do the right stuff. It's not enough to just do the good stuff. It's not even enough to persevere through hardship and to stay true to who you are. You have to have fire. We have to have fire. So we're just going to create some space for you to respond however you feel you need to. We have some carpet out the front and largely that's not to suck on. <laughs> that is just to create a slightly less hard place. Yeah. We're going to pull out a song that is so Jehoshaphat-like it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, sorry. I... <laughs> Seinfeld quote. Um, <laughs> we've done this before. We haven't practiced it. We don't care. Because we're more aware of him than we are of our own limitations. It may look like I'm surrounded, but actually I'm surrounded by you. This is that song, the song's called This Is How I Fight My Battles. Now, it doesn't actually say in the song how I fight my battles because the idea is we understand that I fight my battles in worship. I fight my battles by declaring who God is over my circumstances. That's how I fight my battles. And in that context, it looks like I'm surrounded, but actually I'm surrounded by Him. Let's stand. We're going to sing this. Go nuts. My favorite prophetic people. Do what you need to do. <laughs> And as we do this, I want you to respond in your own heart. If you have gone, you know what, my hunger level isn't where it was. It's time for upgrade. He's wanting to upgrade our hunger. Don't go into condemnation, shame. It's not what this is about at all. This is about your upgrade. Because the level to which you're hungry determines the level to which you pull down.